As far as divorces go, Camilla and her husband Andrew's split must have been among the most civil in history. Yeah, in a way, it was the original conscious uncoupling. They were only technically semi-coupled the entire time that they were married, which I kind of respect. You know, they did things their way. And they continue to do so. Now, we've done an episode on Camilla and Andrew's early courtship and their marriage, the early days of their marriage, which you should listen to if you haven't heard it yet, because it really is quite something. But today we're going to dive into the latter years of their marriage, their divorce, and then the relationship they have today as chummy exes. I'm Allie Merriam. And I'm Eva Walchover. And this is Windsors and Losers, the podcast that tells you an overlooked story about the British royal family in every episode. This season, we're focusing entirely on Queen Camilla by looking into one aspect of her life in each installment. Today, Camilla, the ex-wife. So here's what we'll talk about. First, the lead up to their divorce. Then, the split itself. Wasn't very messy. And then finally... (laughs) APB and CPB today. That's a lot of PBs and BPs. And <laughs> so, Allie, before we move on, I have some breaking news to bring you. Great. The other day, I was on the high street near where I'm living in London currently. And I was running a very mundane chore. I was in a baby store buying a pacifier and some water shoes for my two kids. And I was wearing headphones. And what I was listening to was an edit of this show that I had just done. And I was listening back to it to make sure that everything was, you know, sounding good. And I get up to the checkout to buy my two items. And the woman behind the counter was like, oh, you're wearing headphones. That's why you couldn't hear me screaming. I was trying to get (laughs) your attention. And I was like, huh, what happened? She's like, yeah, you didn't hear us shouting. We were, um, King Charles just drove by. Oh my God. Huh? She's like, say what? And not only that, he was stopped out front at a red light and he was in his open top rolls. And we looked up because we heard his, he has like police protection on motorcycles and they blow their whistles when someone important is coming. Yeah. So we heard the whistles and we looked up and we saw him stopped right outside the shop and I can't believe you didn't hear us. We were screaming. Everyone was screaming. And I, I mean, it, it stunned me for the rest of the day, Allie, because the knife twist was that I didn't hear or see King Charles stopped outside in an open top car because I was listening too loudly to this podcast. That is just such a perfect piece of poetry. You couldn't make it up. <laughs> was he driving himself? I think so. I think so. Because where we are in London, it's we're near the, the motorway that goes west. So west to Windsor or even to Highgrove, which I think is probably where he was going. And it's summertime here. So he had his open top car. And yeah, I missed the whole thing. Well, I feel like there's nothing like a missed Charles opportunity that's better than to tee up what we have to talk about today. Onwards. Part one, the lead up. As everyone who has studied one modicum of royal history knows, Andrew and Camilla Parker Bowles were leading pretty separate lives by the time their divorce rolled around in the mid-90s. She was pretty much in a relationship with Prince Charles, and Andrew had been doing his own thing before their marriage and during their marriage. 
So in the Times of London, Tina Brown, who, you know, we all bow down to the altar of Tina Brown's social reportage, she wrote in this newspaper that she'd met the couple at their home in 1981. And even back then, described their dynamic as, quote, a kind of electric indifference. She said that Andrew was, quote, amused and flattered that Charles was in love with his wife, Camilla. So they basically continued to socialize together in public, but in private, they had largely gone their separate ways for many, many years. So this really describes how they'd been living their lives. And I would sort of assume that they would have continued on their merry way had a couple of things not happen next. Yeah. And also just to pause for a minute, I find that just the most aristocratic thing for Andrew to be, quote, amused and flattered that the future king had noticed his wife and was in fact in a relationship with his wife. There is a quote that's perhaps apocryphal, but Nicholas Soames, who we sort of mentioned (laughs) very tangentially in the Camilla's Friends episode, noted that Andrew Parker Bowles was the only man in the nation who would, quote, lay down his wife for his country (laughs) as opposed to his life. So (laughs) there you go. People took note. (laughs) In another book written by Caroline Graham in 2001, it's called Camilla, Her True Story. She notes that the party line had basically been that they would never divorce. Graham wrote that friends had said, quote, no, she would never divorce her husband, Andrew Parker Bowles. This was echoed by Mr. Parker Bowles himself, which led to at least one inaccurate page one splash in the sun, which said, we will never divorce. But in truth, the devastation caused by the Andrew Morton book, the explicit but still mysterious phone calls of Diana and Charles and Camilla, blew a hole so big in both relationships that they were dead in the water. This is Graham continuing. My firm belief is that without those catastrophic revelations, both marriages would have limped on in the way that so many aristocratic marriages do. So while they had been living in this sort of detente, once those revelations came out in the press, it became unsustainable for everyone to stay married. Yeah. And just to be clear, so we know what she's referencing in that quote. She's talking about, of course, the hacked phone calls between Diana and a boyfriend, Squidgy Gate and Charles and Camilla, Camilla Gate, as well as Diana's book, and then Charles's book and documentary that came out in which he admitted his affairs. So she's kind of referring to all that, that sort of snowballing effect of all of these things that were blowing the lid off of this affair. Yes. And I know there's one anecdote you really love, which sort of sums up Andrew's predicament nicely. Yeah. So Tina Brown writes about the embarrassing effect that this all had on Andrew and why eventually he put his foot down and decided it was time to split. And she describes one particular event that I just love and we have to include here, which she writes in her book, Palace Papers, quote, the day of the first serialization of Morton's publication, and this was in 1992 of Diana's book, Editor's Note, Quote, the Parker Bowleses appeared together with Tom at the Alfred Dunhill Queen's Cup polo match in Windsor Great Park as guests in the Queen's box. I'm certainly not going to bury myself away because of what the papers say, Camilla told reporters defiantly. Absolutely not. Why should I? The couple needed the show of unity as much for their children as themselves. Andrew, recently promoted from the preposterously named post of Lieutenant Colonel Commanding the Household Cavalry and Silver Stick-in-Waiting to Queen Elizabeth II, to the rank of Brigadier, didn't much relish all the covert merriment about how often his silver stick was made to wait for his wife. I've read that before and honestly wondered, like, what are they talking about with the silver stick? Like, is it just such a 
blatant metaphor. Is that what I they know. mean? But then, Ali, do you remember how at the <laughs> at Charles's coronation, how Princess Anne was the gold stick in waiting to King Charles? No. No. Yeah, that was her official title. Is that why she wore the feather? I guess so. And that was an honor that Charles had bestowed on her for that event. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So all of these situations, the Morton book, Charles's book with Dimbleby, Charles's interview with Dimbleby, clearly public taunting by their fellow titled friends, which, you know, side note, must have really bothered Andrew because as we know from talking about Andrew a couple times, one thing that really mattered to him was his connections with aristocrats. So uh-huh. if people like the Spencer Churchills were mocking him in public, I feel like Andrew, that could have been <laughs> discussed yes. the Brooklyn Camel's back. Yes, that probably mattered most of all, in fact. Yes. So all of these things together led to the momentous day in 1995, where after 22 years of marriage, 56-year-old Andrew and 47-year-old Camilla finally decided to call it quits. Now, going back to Caroline Graham's book, she wrote that on Monday, January 9th, 1995, a royal reporter from The Sun named Wayne Francis received a phone call from a reliable source, and he was told that the Bowleses were going to divorce. Graham recounts Francis as saying, quote, it was pretty much a bolt from the blue. Everyone knew the Parker Bowles's marriage had been a sham for years, but it still came as a complete surprise to most people when they decided to divorce. It was something not even their closest friends had expected. For years, Andrew Parker Bowles had stoically put up with his wife's affair, but Prince Charles's public confession of his long love affair with Camilla proved to be the straw which broke the camel's back. Editor's note. Okay, so recollections may vary on which particular straw broke the camel's back. Um, And then Graham also notes that apparently the previous weekend, they had told like their very tight inner circle who we know does not leak. No. And you know, what's interesting about all this and what it's making me think about is that at this time, no one in a million years would have thought that by divorcing that Camilla would go on to marry Charles. Like it would have been seen as Mm -hmm. there's no way there's a future in that. So what's the point of them divorcing? And in fact, at the time, the very notion that Charles would marry his mistress would have called into question his succession to the throne. So I think that's also partially why this would have been so shocking to their social set at the time. It was like, what's the point of them divorcing? There's no future for Camilla and Charles. Yeah, that did relegate her to sort of an ambiguous, Mm -hmm. probably not too hopeful position. Exactly. Graham continues that... What had changed was that Andrew was hopping mad. He decided to stop living a lie. Quote, he was sick of the constant jibes. He was fed up with his privacy being constantly invaded. He decided that enough was enough. So they filed for divorce. Yeah, and of course, that the privacy being invaded is also referring to just all the horrible press fallout and the like camera people and paparazzi staked outside of their house night and day after yeah. these stories broke. I think Andrew and Camilla were also thinking of their kids. You know, this might have been something of an afterthought. But the (laughs) children were a bit older. Tom was 20 and he was at a university and Laura was 16 and at boarding school. So they thought that the children were sort of old enough to muddle their way through. But one other thing that doesn't really get included in the official list of why they decided to split, but I feel like is so Andrew being Andrew, we can't press on without stopping (laughs) to acknowledge this fact. Um, Andrew had... A girlfriend that he was serious about too. So while he probably was hopping mad to be sort of like publicly associated with this 
love triangle. Kind of a cuckolded husband position. Excellent use of that word. Um, He was dating someone named Rosemary Pittman, who was 54 and also a divorced mother of three who like rode in their circles, probably literally as like a hunting lady. And um, so it was noted that by the time the press descended following the divorce announcement, Camilla had gone to Highgrove with Charles and Andrew was off in a townhouse in a town called Malmesbury, probably butchering that. So apologies to the (laughs) residents of Malmesbury uh, with his mistress, Rosemary Pittman. Yeah, who he would go on to marry shortly thereafter. Yeah, so not like Andrew's home sobbing into a teddy. Like, he's good. The AP even noted that Parker Bowles, quote, relied heavily on Mrs. Pittman's support. So I feel like the implication there is Andrew was fine. Yeah, to refer back to our previous point, actually his prospects were a lot better than Camilla's at that point. Yeah, he could go on to just remarry. He wasn't in an entanglement. Mm-hmm. With someone who had a sort of quasi-governmental role. Exactly. So once they decided to drop the hammer, as it were. The silver stick. <laughs> Camilla calls Charles, gives him a little heads up. Graham uh-huh. quotes a friend who said, quote, Of course, Camilla told the Prince of Wales in advance. She tells him everything as he tells her everything. The prince was concerned for Camilla, but he greeted the news as no surprise. He just gave her his full and unequivocal support, as always. Reading that quote, I'm like... He wasn't surprised. No shit. (laughs) He was kind of involved. Yeah. (laughs) Now, this was 1995. So when I read all this like drama about the Parker Bowles drama going down, I forget Diana was still in the picture. Diana was alive in 1995. Yeah, she was still around. And she was on, meanwhile, on her own kind of what was at the time described as her like revenge era. Um, and they were not divorced. Yeah, they, in 1992, Charles and Diana announced that they were separating, but it wasn't until 1996 that the divorce was made official. So along that timeline, you can kind of see some of the wheels in motions here. Like things were starting to get plotted out for Charles and Camilla. But according to Graham, uh, Diana was pissed, (laughs) not necessarily because, uh, Camilla and Andrew were getting divorced. I think she'd kind of made her peace with the whole Parker Bowles affair and washed her hands of it. But mostly she was pissed because she had been kept in the dark and didn't know that it was coming. And basically, um, she assumed that Charles had known for a while, but didn't tell her. So she was surprised and probably read about it in the newspapers, just like most people. Yeah. And she must have also smelled a rat. Like, wait a minute, what are they, what are they working on here? That sounds very Diana. And she's not wrong. No, because here we are. (laughs) today queen camilla but again the cat was pretty much out of the bag because charles had been on national television talking about his affair with camilla so (laughs) oh like quoting from the same playbook here (laughs) (laughs) no secrets here yikes brings us to part two, the divorce itself. And again, we're relying heavily on Caroline Graham's book here because she pretty much devoted an entire chapter to the divorce. And since it was written about 20 years ago, it was a little more like closer to the timeline of events, which we're uh, revisiting and excavating today. Mm-hmm. So if you'll permit me, I would like to read the divorce statement in full because it's just a masterwork of like 
implications and uh, responsibility avoidance. Right. Please do. Okay. The statement. The decision to seek an end to our marriage was taken jointly and as a private matter, but as we have no expectation that our privacy will be respected, we issue this statement in the hope that it will ensure that our family and friends are safe from harassment. Most especially, we ask that our children, who remain our principal concern and responsibility, be left alone to pursue their studies at what is clearly a difficult time for them. Throughout our marriage, we have always tended to follow rather different interests, but in recent years, we have led completely separate lives. We've grown apart to such an extent that with the exception of our children and a lasting friendship, there is little of common interest between us, and we have therefore decided to seek divorce. Well, I know that they weren't royals at this time, but that is such a masterclass in the royal press release where they're basically telling the press ahead of time what their expectations are, Mm -hmm. and their expectations are, you will leave us alone and you will leave our children alone, and we have the expectation that our privacy will be respected. Well, haha about that. I feel like that's antagonistic from Camilla, knowing what we know about her now, how she like cultivates press relationships. There she's right. like nagging them and being like, you guys aren't going to listen to us. But as she became more and more in the royal fold, I think she began to learn like the give and take. The only way to, yeah, to court mm-hmm. them is to keep them on side. Yeah. There's a lot of detail here. Like a lot of celebrity split announcements, which, you know, they weren't technically celebrities. They are just like horse people from the countryside. Um, They're short. Mm-hmm. But here they're like, they're giving us a lot. It's like, we don't have common interest. We've lived apart. We've followed different interests. It's like, yeah, yeah. You follow different interests, but like you're both basically in other relationships. Yeah, totally. I see this as them completely flailing, just like grabbing at every possible excuse or reason where it's like, or obfuscating. They're like, we're not going to say the obvious that all of you people know is the reason this is happening. So we're going to tell you this long drawn out version of events. (laughs) I mean, I guess what we can also deduce here is that it is amicable. Like they could Mm -hmm. agree on however many word count statement this is, which they could have done with half as many words. Or Charles could have lent them a PR person to be like, uh, you're giving them too much. Maybe Charles wrote it, actually. This is... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a good point. Charles like dictated it to Camilla on the phone. Mm-hmm. So after the statement, clearly comes a divorce. And here we rely on Graham. She recounts the divorce proceedings. And I'll just read from her book here. On 19th January, the couple were absent from a dingy courtroom in London's Somerset House as their decree Nissi was granted. The 40-pound decree, that means the cost, not the weight, took just three minutes to be granted. According to court documents filed by the couple, Andrew Parker Bowles admitted to spending just 90 nights at the family home in Corsham, Wiltshire in the previous three years. In her written statement to the judge, Camilla said, The respondent and I, although both having our place of residence as Middlewick House, have led separate lives through the said period. By February 1992, at least, it had become clear to both of us that the marriage was finished. Now, that's all, like, well and good and very proper. However, as far as I know, London's Somerset House is not dingy, but maybe to them it is. Right. I mean, maybe there's some sort of dingy back rooms. I am sometimes surprised when you see photos of, like, the Queen's apartments at Windsor or at Buckingham Palace. There is a sort of dingy almost it's like worn yeah we have this vision of what the palatial public rooms look like yeah exactly but the actual kind of back rooms at some of these buildings are a little bit 
born and um yeah so maybe it's maybe it's true um i was struck by just the bargain of a 40 pound divorce that's pretty good that's true i wonder if that price has gone up in the intervening decades i'm assuming so if you know email us (laughs) how much does it cost to get a divorce at somerset house these days now because i can't let any tmi detail go undetailed in this podcast the follow-up to them having spent only 90 nights in the same home (laughs) was that according to graham a friend revealed that they had not actually shared a bed for at least a decade (laughs) graham quotes a friend of camilla who said quote Basically, the prince didn't want to share his mistress with anyone, not even her husband. Andrew was never allowed back into the marital four-poster bed after Charles and Camilla, their their affair resumed shortly after the birth of Prince Harry. Mm-hmm. So there's the detail that you never wanted, but you have received anyway. I mean, my first thought, too, is that, like, it's not uncommon for these people to have their own rooms. But I guess yes. the implication here is that... No sex was had. Yeah, and... Andrew was, he was out of there. Yeah, exiled. Well, Mm -hmm. them's the breaks. Mm -hmm. So despite not having shared a marital bed with her husband for 10 years, um, apparently Camilla was pretty sad. So Graham uh, quotes another friend who, you gotta wonder who these friends are. Um, And just as an aside, I made a TikTok last week and somebody wrote like, uh, you know, not really a, kind comment but just said what do you believe everything you read in a book and no i don't (laughs) um going here this is like the text we have to rely on so everything we take with a grain of salt but otherwise we're not going to know because camilla's not telling us we don't have a direct line to camilla yet yet yes so basically graham quotes this friend or source near camilla who said that um After 21 years of marriage, she, Camilla, of course, felt immense sadness. She needed the support of her prince even more on that difficult day, and she had it. The prince called her several times that day to give her his full support. In fact, Camilla coped well with the pressures of divorce. She remained her usual self. She has a fantastic capacity to keep her sense of humor through even the darkest days. Her close circle of friends rallied around and remained loyal and protective. Eva, I would like your hot take on that quote. Yes. Well, I have one ready, ready to fire. (laughs) Go, go. The thing that struck me about that is the use of the phrase her prince, because that really (laughs) conjures images of prince on a white horse, her knight in shining armor. And that is not an image that I ever associate with the then Prince Charles. No, (laughs) not really. Of all the like prince associations, that's not one I've ever entertained personally. No. And also, especially at this time when they were engaged in this long and rather sordid affair to describe him as her prince it just seems so quaint and romantic and not really a fair description of what it was i was struck by when the friend notes that camilla has a fantastic capacity to keep her sense of humor through even the darkest of days like we do know that about camilla and we've talked about the sort of like public perception that she is this really boilerplate British lady who has stiff upper lip, never complain, never explain, Mm -hmm. who she just like trudges onward through hard times. But I think you could give yourself a beat to mourn your marriage. Definitely. And actually, that's a really good point, Allie. And that does make me think about this kind of general account that is often given of the end of their marriage. 
which is that it was all hunky-dory and they were happy and it was mutual and they had just come to the end of, you know, the natural end of their relationship. But we can't discount the fact that there must have been many painful and unhappy times throughout the years, especially Mm -hmm. when both people were unfaithful and by all accounts, Camilla was besotted with Andrew when she first started dating him and they got married. So there must have been hurt there. And in fact, in this book, Rebel King by Tom Bauer, he in passing notes about their marriage in general, not just the end of it, but about their marriage that, quote, Camilla was unhappy, observed a friend, because Andrew was always putting her down. And then he goes on to note that Andrew described her as bone idol, which I take to mean. She was really lazy. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of like his put down about Camilla. And that that was why he would spend so much time in, in London with his girlfriends because she was lazy and their house was messy. So maybe things weren't so happy and jovial in that household. We can't just take the kind of public record version, I guess. And the world will probably never know because Andrew stayed loyal. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really have any accounting because, you know, he didn't go on to marry the future monarch. So there wasn't, like, much reflection or resources talking about his state of mind after the divorce. Right. But we can assume that he did fine, because he remarried rather quickly. And the following year married his lady friend, Rosemary Pittman, who um, is a garden designer and all-around country person. And that was great. They stayed married for 14 years until she passed away in 2010. Interesting. Only a year later, they got married. Well, he didn't waste any time. Certainly not. Um, The AP noted that the Parker Bowleses and the Pittmans had basically been part of the same social circle and had been friends for years, and that Rosemary and Camilla had also been friends. So it's like... That all checks out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's how they do those things. Yeah, they're very chill. Like, the new Parker Bowleses or Parker Bowleses had joined Camilla and Charles at Sandringham, and they went on a beach vacation to Antigua in 2008. So, like, it's all good. They also went to Charles and Camilla's wedding. Sure. And then Andrew was at the coronation. Okay, so what happened next, Allie? This brings us to part three, what happened after the divorce. So, basically, they continued as they were before. They carried on co-parenting from a distance. The kids were pretty old. I think by the time the divorce went through, Tom was 21. Laura was in her late teens. Um, The Telegraph had an article about them and quoted a friend who said, quote, that set are pretty robust. The Gloucestershire hunting set, a sort of aristocratic arrogance, perhaps. As to the relationship, they're mutual parents and grandparents. So they get on with it. Did I really mispronounce Gloucestershire? Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire. Yeah, that, that's how you say it. <laughs> I do love how this is all spun as a kind of an attribute. Like, they're just so robust. They just get on with things. And what we're talking about here is the dissolution of a marriage as the result of rampant affairs for many years. <laughs> yeah, like, and like that, an affair oh, with the future king. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but they just get on with it. It's that keep calm spirit. Yeah, and I think that... Andrew, having always really valued his connections to the royals, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't going to rock the boat any more than he needed to to sort of arrange his own life for his happiness. So that's such um, a good point. It behooved him to 
go along with this to a certain extent. Yeah. So today they have their two children and five grandkids. And it seems as though they're still incredibly chummy. And in fact, he's acted as Camilla's representative, which was somewhat unusual to have, well, first of all, a divorced queen um, with an alive ex-husband. But um, last (laughs) October, he represented the then queen consort, now queen, at the funeral of someone named John Bowes Lyon, which um, is Parker Bowles's cousin and also one of Charles's like extended cousins. So it was all in the family. Parker Bowles might have gone on his own anyways, but it was like noted in the court circular that the queen consort was represented by Brigadier Andrew Parker Bowles. So according to the Daily Mail, Andrew's happy to do anything he's asked. He still enjoys a warm relationship with Camilla. And apparently this was literally the first time a queen's been represented in an official capacity by an ex-husband. So go ahead for setting precedents. Yeah, right. They're just moving and shaking and revolutionizing all over the place. Truly. He went to the coronation, which he should be there. He's part of the family and their kids and grandkids were there, of course. And as we know, he used to be boyfriend-girlfriend with Princess Anne, and they're still buddies. So, like, Andrew's in the fold. Yeah. This is going back a few years, but when we did our episode on Charles and Camilla's City Hall wedding, I remember that uh, Andrew apparently called her the night before the wedding to wish her luck the way mm-hmm. just a good old pal would do. I remember reading an article that said he he was acting like the mother of the bride at the wedding. <laughs> One royal commenter who we like to quote, someone named Ingrid Seward, noted in the Telegraph that Andrew has always been close to Camilla and he's remained close to Camilla. So... Um, I know in the intro we joked about them being the original conscious uncouplers, but like they, this is pretty good. Like Gwyneth and Chris also did a good job, but I feel this is the, this is kind of the goal that yeah. you separate and you still are a family. So just to this kind of overall point, Allie, about how we are told over and over again how close they are, how it's all in the family, everyone gets along great. And I'm not here to, push back on that because I have no reason to believe that that's not true. I just find it very interesting that that this is so much a part of her narrative now. And during the lead up to the coronation, when there was all this press about Camilla and kind of her backstory and her family life and who her kids are and who her ex-husband is, I just noticed a number of articles that were sort of about this very thing, which is like, Camilla mm-hmm. and Andrew, get along great. Everything's swell. In fact, there was this article in the Times of London written by this woman, Hillary Rose, and the headline was, Queen Camilla's first love, they had a very lusty life together, which if I'm Camilla, I'm like, please, please don't. (laughs) But two quotes from that article kind of stood out to me as an example of how much they are pushing this narrative. Quote, everyone loves Andrew, the Marchioness of Lansdowne, a close friend of Camilla's, told Roy Nicka, Sunday Times royal editor. Quote, he's a real charmer, but he's always terribly misbehaving. Andrew will ring her up and tell her when she's got something wrong, and she'll ring him up and say when he's misbehaving. And then she goes on to say, quote, talking about the antics of the Parker Bowles's Gloucestershire set in the 80s, the novelist Jilly Cooper once remarked, I bet Worcestershire's just as degenerate. Horses always lead to these things. As for Andrew, 
Asked about Cooper's admission that he was an inspiration for her upper-class cads, he replied, quote, I took it and continue to take it as a great compliment. So I'm gathering that you are just skeptical that things are as hunky-dory as all of this reportage suggests. It's not even that I'm skeptical of it. It's more just like it's interesting that it's so being pushed front and center. It's almost like palace PR and the media are conspiring to create this narrative that it's like a sitcom, that they're all, everyone gets along great. He, Yeah, he's a bit cheeky. He's a cad, but Camilla loves him. There's just something about him. No one can help but love him. And it's deflecting from some of the seedy or tabloid elements of this story. Um, it's, yeah, it's just rewriting history a little bit so that we can all stomach Camilla as queen a bit better. That's a very interesting take in the Graham book she quotes Camilla as saying that she had the quote best divorce ever and in reflecting on your argument here it's it does seem as though the lady doth protest too much of it I mean yeah I believe that it was as amicable as can be hoped for and there's no reason not to believe that it's just that why do we have to keep being told this over and over again and I think the reason we're being told over and over again why is that Camilla is still being sold to us as the mm-hmm. queen, you know? Yes. And I think that is a very educated POV informed by <laughs> a lifetime, an adult lifetime of reading about this, but also like everything we're learning, like there's always some sort of like behind the scenes machinations happening yes. when it comes to the the Windsors. It's all been spun for our benefit. She's mm-hmm. been made palatable for us. And one way that she's been made palatable is that Andrew is this lovable kind of oafish character in the larger story of Camilla. Whereas you think that the true Andrew comes through in this Lucian Freud portrait. <laughs> we both are obsessed with this picture. Yeah, and we would be remiss not to mention this as part of Andrew's post-divorce life. So yes, after his divorce from Camilla, Andrew struck up this rather unlikely friendship with the famous painter Lucian Freud. And in 2003, he painted a portrait of Andrew called The Brigadier, and Google it if you haven't seen it, because it's really something. And in that Times article that I just mentioned, the writer writes a little bit about this portrait. She says, quote, when he complained that he looked fat, Freud added another inch to his stomach to shut him up, as Parker Bowles put it. He didn't buy the painting, he later told Tatler, because he didn't have the spare three million lying around. And a, quote, seven-foot picture of myself looking rather red-faced and fat wasn't my idea of fun. The Brigadier later sold for $34 million at Christie's. The painting does capture something of his roguish side. Exactly. And I feel like that's a perfect way to end this episode because where can we... We can't top this painting. It sort of says it all. You can't top the painting? No. It does need to be Googled. Well, that brings us to our winners and losers questions. First, Eva, what does this reflection on Camilla's separation and role as ex-wife tell you about Camilla? I think, I mean, I don't really have a lot to add beyond the, the soapbox that I've already been on for much of this episode. But I do think what it tells me is a little bit of more of what we've established throughout this series, which is that Camilla has this wide and very long-standing circle of friends. And and it seems like because of the position that she's in, it really serves her to keep people close and to not burn bridges. And maybe the best 
example of this is her ex-husband. He's going to know all the skeletons in her closet. And so, yeah, that's a bit cynical, but it just makes sense why she would be friends with him. Mm -hmm. What about you, Allie? To me, this is a good example of the way a class of people live that is unfamiliar to the vast majority of us. I feel like this gives us a small opportunity to peep through the keyhole onto like what an aristocratic marriage looks like. And I think that in modern times, the palace is still in overdrive doing PR and managing different things. But I feel like all of these episodes and all of these examples are like history lessons and they're applicable to what we see today too. So I feel like the level of like, you know, reading between the lines that we apply to a pretty, in the grand scheme of things, random story from the 90s, <laughs> like that's useful for me when we're reading and learning about people in the news today, like royals or otherwise. That's really well put. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so who do you think is the Windsor? Well, whenever Andrew Parker Bowles is part of a story, I feel <laughs> like it could only be him because he seems to have just skated through life unharmed, well-liked. There's a very valuable painting paying homage to him. Yes, but regrettably, he has no stake in it. No. Tragic. Tragic. <laughs> what about you? The Windsor to me, I mean, Charles. This all seemed to work out just the way he wanted it to go. So it was a bit of like a rocky road getting there. But, you know, he was there providing support to Camilla when she needed it. And he was referenced as her prince. So that's good for his image, too. What about the loser? The loser. Um, there really isn't a loser in this story. I think everyone's kind of come out of it ahead in a way. Andrew gets to be a royal without having to actually be a royal. Camilla's queen. And like you say, Charles won in the end in every aspect. So yeah, I don't really, can't really detect a loser. What about you, Allie? Do you have a loser? Well, I wouldn't really say she's a loser. I would just say like a footnote to the story. The journalist Caroline Graham, she wrote this biography of Camilla that I think was like maybe 20 years too early. And um, she had all these sources. She was like in the mix when some pretty seminal things were happening that reshaped the monarchy. But, you know, I'd like I'd like a sequel. Yeah, she needs to update that. Mm -hmm. Good point. Well, Eva, this was our penultimate episode of this Camilla season. We have one more episode. Wow. Do you feel like we've said all there is to say about Camilla? Honestly, yes. And then some. Yeah. How about you? I feel the same way. I feel like we really stretched it by even getting to 10 episodes. <laughs> so I would say good for us. Well, there's one more. And the yes. last episode is very important. Arguably, it's the glue that holds the whole thing together about how she and Charles basically put into motion the long-term Camilla acceptance scheme. Yeah. So you have to tune into that one. Otherwise, it will all fall apart. So we'll see you back here next week. See you soon. Windsors and Losers is created and hosted by us, Eva Walchover and Allie Merriam. It's mixed by Kristen Muller. Special thanks to Lee Lawrence for the beautiful silhouette of Camilla in this season's art. Please like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>